0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show
0: podcast. Let me get right at it. And what I want to talk to you about is what's been going on between the, the premier of the province of Ontario and her attacks on uh, Tim Horton franchises, not all of them, but particularly one that is owned by Ron Joyce Jr., Where because of the, uh, according to the franchisee, because of the minimum wage having gone to $14, they've made adjustments for staffing in hours worked and in benefits paid. So the premier has taken runs at uh, Tim Hortons and at the franchisees. And Tim Hortons has issued a statement in which they challenge the franchisees They say a few franchises. I'll get that statement for you shortly. A few franchisees have uh, stepped out of line, as it were. But there's a lot more to this, and uh, I posted to my blog on uh, the Roy Green Show page on any of the chorus radio stations that you're listening to now. Just go to their website. You'll see what I wrote, and I wrote to the the headline is, the Premier of Ontario wrongly in attack mode, because I just reminded people of where we were not so long ago because of decisions made by Premier Wynne and where we were was there were very many people in the province of Ontario, thousands and thousands and thousands, who could not properly heat their homes, didn't have the money to pay for the electricity they required because of the mistake, that was her word, the Premier made as far as hydro decisions were concerned. And as far as the Joyce family is concerned, I know Ron Joyce Sr., and I have to tell you, he's a good guy. Business genius, Uh, former police officer, has given millions and millions and millions to charity, and uh, his company, of course, well, it's not his company anymore, but employed thousands of people across Canada, and has become as identified with this country uh, as anything else, more than most things. So who do you side with? Do you side with the premier who says, hey, you're out of line for... Reacting to the minimum wage that we made law by changing the hours for employees and cutting back on their benefits. By the way, it's not just a couple of Trim Hortons franchises; other businesses are following suit, and we knew this was going to happen. Or do you side with the with the business community and uh, whether it's a, a franchisee of a of a Hortons of the Hortons company or an, another firm where they've said, "Look, we we're, we're going to react to this because we can't afford it." Dan Kelly is the president, the CEO, and the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and I have a tweet from Mr. Kelly, who's standing by to join us. He tweeted, Premier Wynne's shock over a reduction in employee benefits would have a lot more credibility if she'd ordered even a basic impact assessment of the minimum wage hike before proceeding. Well, she didn't want to do that, Dan, because this wasn't about the minimum wage. This was about getting reelected.
2: You're absolutely right, right. This, this had very little to do with uh, with anything with with respect to minimum wage. In fact, the government had decided to index the minimum wage only a couple of years earlier, only to, at record lows in the polls, decide to pull this uh, hat out of the uh, out of the uh, this this uh, trick out of the hat.
0: The double double. She pulled the double double out of the hat.
2: You got it. And they tried to convince Ontarians that this was a great idea, ignoring all of the evidence from us and others. About what would happen if the minimum wage went up too fast, too soon, and of course now the chickens are coming home to roost.
0: Yeah, you know what I find interesting? You have this now huge corporation, which owns Tim Hortons, and they're apologizing for some my word rogue rogue franchisees. But on the other side of the ledger, you have the small business person who bought a franchise, and is it's it's tough not. It's tough to make money as a franchisee. It takes a few years before you start to make money. Doesn't matter who you are. You've got the small business person who ha- who's the franchisee. Um, where do you side, Dan? Can, can you break this down for us? Corporation Absolutely. apologizes. Small business person says, "I can't. I can't do anything else."
2: I have to admit, I'm I'm a bit surprised with the franchisor in this case. Of course, now a foreign-owned uh, multinational corporation uh, for. Sort of throwing its franchisees under the bus in this scenario i mean a franchise owner is no different than than any other independent business owner other than the fact that they have a brand name attached to their business they still have to ensure that the, the business itself is profitable at, or at least on a pathway to be profitable otherwise what's the point of keeping it around i mean it, it, they've been accused of the fact that this, this family may be wealthy and i don't know their personal circumstances. Uh, of being cheap and and uh, and cutting out these benefits. But as I was thinking about this, if they had done what many other business owners are doing, and actually just reduced their headcount, reduced the number of employees that they have, this story wouldn't have actually been created at all. Uh, I think people would have understood that you know if you if the business was was needing to cut two people in order to stay afloat, that that. You know, people wouldn't have been as outraged as it seems that they've been. Certainly the premier has been with respect to this story. But you know what? That would be a far worse impact overall, especially for those two employees that might have lost their jobs. But instead, they trimmed some benefits, benefits I have to tell you, that most small business owners don't provide to their employees right now. And by doing that, they've raised the ire of the premier. Uh, and a political attack taken on their business, which I think is, is bullying in and of itself.
0: Other businesses as well in the province are are adjusting, are they not? They're making some, not not identical necessarily uh, changes that were made uh, by some Horton's franchisees, but other businesses are making different, making their own adjustments, correct?
2: Absolutely. Uh, virtually every business that pays at or near the minimum wage is having to accommodate this. And again, it's not just those that paid minimum wage. Uh, But those that pay, you know, if if you have employees that were making 15 bucks an hour, you know, uh, six weeks ago, they're now (laughs) they're now making the minimum wage and expecting their own increase. So this is reverberating uh, through thousands and thousands of Ontario businesses right now. And I got to tell you, we when we surveyed them in December to find out what businesses were doing right now to prepare for the 15 the $14 an hour minimum wage on its way to 15 next year, they told us that the, the trimming benefits was actually the least uh, problematic uh, impact that was that was going to be felt. Far more business owners were actually trimming the number of hours that they offer their employees, trimming the number of staff that they actually employ. And the one that worries me the most is that they were reduce. 50% of Ontario businesses said that they were reducing the number of opportunities, the number of jobs that they have for youth and inexperienced workers.
0: Well, automation exists for, for many entry-level jobs, and when you raise the minimum wage as significantly as Premier Wynne did, perhaps that makes automation conversion cost-doable.
2: You know, it, it absolutely does. And look, I, we would never suggest that businesses stick with old practices if there's a better way to do it or a less costly way to do it. But you sure don't want government to be making those decisions on behalf of employers, and I think that that's the thing that people have to keep in mind, that, that these benefits tri- these, this benefit trimming wasn't as a result of just the business saying, hey, we want to make more money out of this entity. It was as a result of the fact that their wage bill went up by 20% in a couple of, over a couple of weeks period. I can't imagine if, if you took your largest household expense, say your mortgage, and that cost went up by 20% in the matter of a few weeks, Right. You would have to make some tough decisions to keep yourself above water, just as this business did, and thousands and thousands of other businesses with much more limited circumstances have had to do over the last number of weeks.
0: Yeah. And, Dan, hold on a second, please. I want to ask you some more questions, because there are implications that are above and beyond uh, the province of Ontario. Alberta is going to be increasing its minimum wage in October. Other provinces uh, are going to as well. Some have. Um And there are implications, national implications, on the economy of Canada. I know there are people who are saying, well, it's only just a couple of bucks an hour. You're making more of this than it is. No, we're not. But I'll talk to Dan Kelly some more about this. Then we'll open the phone lines and hear what you have to say. Stay with us, please.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, Just looking at this, this statement by the Tim Hortons company, I'll just read two very brief paragraphs. Let us be perfectly clear. These recent actions by a few restaurant owners and the unauthorized statements made to the media by a rogue group claiming to speak on behalf of Tim Hortons do not reflect the values of our brand, the views of our company, or the views of the overwhelming majority of our dedicated and hardworking restaurant owners. While our restaurant owners, like all small business owners, have found this sudden transition challenging, we're committed to helping them work through these changes... However, Tim Hortons team members should never be used to further an agenda, or to be treated just as an expense. This is completely unacceptable. My guest is Dan Kelly, the president, CEO, and chairman of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. There, there are the words, Dan.
2: Yeah, I got to say that's that's pretty gutless stuff coming from the big company uh, that has, you know, <laughs> these large multinational corporations would. Uh, would trip over their grandmother to save a nickel uh you know I, I i gotta tell you throwing franchisees hard-working independent business owners under the bus like that is uh, certainly not helpful I, I would say it's just about as unhelpful as the premier's comments over the last number of days mm-hmm. singling out a business and I, I, this is a clear uh, the premier's comments are a clear intimidation tactic though uh designed to you know to, to make any business that wants to speak out against this think twice for fear that the leader of their province will, will uh, point them out for for public ridicule.
0: Yeah, if you were leading in the polls, this never would have happened, because there wouldn't there wouldn't have been a would, there, no. there wouldn't have been a minimum wage increase to fourteen dollars an hour.
2: No, look, they, I I will say we you know we were a little nervous about the previous policy of the government where they indexed the minimum wage to inflation. That was that caused some of our members to be a bit worried uh, because it meant that there was going to be an increase every single year. But, you know, I think there was some wisdom to that policy. It, it made a stable increase. Businesses could plan for it. And it was at least in pace with the rate of inflation. But a 20% increase this year, uh, followed by another dollar an hour increase, ra- raising that to a 32% increase over 18 months, is, uh, is quite another thing.
0: So, Dan, when we look at the picture nationally, Alberta in October is going to raise its minimum wage to, I think it's 15 an hour. And other provinces are pondering the same. Some have have raised their minimum wage already. On a national level, when minimum wage, you know, when minimum wage, is, wage is raised at a significant uh, uh, level, it's a significant percentage. What is the potential impact nationally on two things, the small business community and the national economy?
2: You know, we're starting to see we were starting to see a little bit of positive momentum in the economy. Certainly, yesterday's job report showed that there was some jobs growth in Canada, which has uh, been a long time coming. We're we're happy to see that, but it seems that our governments are doing everything they possibly can to take the wind out of the sails of of independent businesses right now, and I'm very worried that BC has announced its intention to go to fifteen dollars an hour. Although, to their credit, the NDP government there has said that they're, they're going to consult on on the pace to get there. Um, if, if B.C., Ontario, Alberta all go to 15 bucks an hour, that's over half the population of the country, uh, that could have a giant effect on employment levels and particularly on youth employment levels. That's, that's the thing that we really have to watch. It's one thing, you know, businesses are still going to need staff. They can automate to an extent. But I've heard from a lot of business owners that say, "Well, look, if I'm paying 15 bucks an hour, I'm going to expect somebody that has some skills uh, to to be at the other end of that uh, paycheck, not not to be training and taking a chance on somebody that that hasn't proven themselves." And and you know, you want small businesses. We all want small businesses to take a shot uh, on on a rookie employee. I remember when I you know got my first shot at a pizza joint in Winnipeg, washing dishes. I didn't have any skills at 15 years old. I had to get my parents' permission to work, and, and gosh, I'm glad they did, because I learned an awful lot in that process.
0: Well, there's uh, there's a lot more yet to be said, and uh, a lot more proverbial water to pass under the... Wow, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the, the well-known cliche, under the bridge. I had a few other things in mind, but I'll leave that <laughs> alone. Dan Kelly, it's always great speaking with you. Thank you so much for the time today, and... We'll stay in touch because there will be more developments coming, I'm sure. Indeed. All the best. Dan Kelly is the president, the CEO, and the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Joshua Boyle. What's going on? I mean, what is going on? With Boyle, with the meeting with Trudeau. I mean, there's some factors here that are disturbing, that are just weird. If you follow the chain, it goes Boyle, Zainab Cotter, Boyle. I'm just doing headlines in here, Omar Cotter, Boyle, Justin Trudeau. Not in sequential order, but they, they're all there. Is it all happenstance? I don't know. But there are questions, many questions are being asked, and the questions deserve answers. The Prime Minister of Canada has taken some steps and made some decisions which are unusual to say the least, including what we talked about last weekend, and that was the returning ISIS terrorists, and the Prime Minister wants to reintegrate them into Canadian society and counsel them, and there'll be poetry readings, and all of that is going to turn them into exciting and excited Canadian citizens, no doubt. His decision to overturn the legislation which allowed a federal government to strip the citizenship of a convicted citizen or convicted de- uh, terrorist, if that terrorist was a dual citizen, one of the citizenships being Canadian. Trudeau, you've heard the clip. We've played it. Where he says... Convicted terrorists will not have their Canadian citizenship removed. That is just too strange. That really is strange. He's made some decisions that require some some real investigation. And uh, we will provide you with a—I'm looking for the information on an interview we're going to do tomorrow. I'll find it. And I know you'll want to, you'll want to hear what we'll be doing. So let's get out this Boyle Trudeau issue. What's really going on? And uh, I want to hear the view of a prosecutor and a security expert, Scott Newark, who writes for Frontline magazine, former Alberta prosecutor, security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada, now a security policy analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. If somebody's got analytical skills as far as understand, understanding and deducing the reality out of clues. At Sherlock, Newark. Where do you as a prosecutor begin? Uh, When when you look at what's going on, he's got criminal charges against him now, uh, right? Where do you begin?
3: I think that's probably the point to make. You and I talked about this guy uh, shortly after he and his uh, wife and kids returned from Pakistan and about just how strange uh, this guy was and the relationship with Zainab Kader and the same kind of this thing, with, like with the Catter family, you can never believe anything that's coming out of their mouth. And we we both sort of concluded at the time that you know stay tuned, folks. There's likely more to come with this guy. And now, as it turns out, uh, there is this meeting with the uh, the prime minister, which we should talk about. And then uh, at the at very end of the year, it was revealed that he has been charged with, I think, is a total of about 15 charges: uh, assault, to count sexual assault and unlawful confinement. Um, uttering threats, obstructing uh, uh, police. And so there's these two new developments, both of which are separate to each other but, of course, related, because he had his meeting with Trudeau a couple of weeks before the uh, the charges were actually laid against him. So l- let me just start with that, because, uh, frankly, there's a lot of uh, people trying to figure out what's going on. Some people were suggesting that this was a long investigation. I actually doubt that that's the case. Um, and that, you know, the uh, the RCMP should have known about this and notified Trudeau. And uh, putting that aside for a second, just the fact of our prime minister having a meeting with this guy who is, let's face it, and, I mean, read what he says and what he's posted and everything else, he is a supporter of the Taliban, okay? That is in large measure why he was where he was. He and his wife got abducted by the al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Qaeda uh, network, which are, frankly, like is often the case in the Islamist world, you know, a bunch of thugs operating in the uh, undercover... It's not, that's
0: a Haqqani network, yes. right?
3: Operating, uh, in effect, undercover, uh, not the Taliban, that he was in fact supportive of them in his, his comments since then. So here's a guy who's a supporter of the Taliban. The Taliban is a listed terrorist entity under Canadian law. Mm-hmm. Why would our Prime Minister meet with someone who is a supporter of a listed terrorist entity. And and it's it's
0: open knowledge. I mean, this isn't hidden information.
3: Correct. And not only that, Roy, the Taliban has been responsible for killing Canadian soldiers. What kind of a message does that send to the Canadian public and the military that he would meet with this person?
0: Yeah. And after so- Omar Carter was in the news, and still remains in the news, on the $10.5 million payment yeah. upset Canadians from coast to coast yeah. to coast. Yeah. To coast
3: and, and deservedly so. And deservedly,
0: deservedly so. So now you're going to meet with a guy who was married to Omar Carter's sister.
3: Um, and by, let's just be clear about this, too, folks. This was not, uh, you know, Justin and uh, Joshua meeting at a uh, Starbucks somewhere. They were meeting in the Prime Minister's office on Parliament Hill, hello, which we all as taxpayers pay for. This was Justin Trudeau representing Canadians as the Prime Minister of Canada meeting with this guy. All
0: right, and, and he hasn't met, for example, with the the families of the two men, the two Canadians who were killed in uh, in the Philippines. I'm glad you
3: mentioned that. Yes, exactly. So contrast very. We're going to be
0: talking with family revealing. member tomorrow, by the way.
3: Good contrast is quite revealing. Okay, so why would he do that? And and I'll tell you. The only thing that strikes me is is quite odd. Uh, This was not publicized by the prime minister's office. It was not on his daily itinerary. The only reason people knew about it was because Boyle put it on his Twitter account, which, by the way, his name for it is Boyle's versus the world, which is a little interesting, and made a reference to the fact that he had actually previously... Um, uh, this is not the first time that he had met with Justin Trudeau. He'd actually met with him previously in the past. And specifically, it said, incidentally, not our first, first meeting with Justin Trudeau. That was in 06 in Toronto over other common interests. Ha ha.
0: I'd like to know what those were.
3: Well, you know what? Uh, the, there's a very good article today by uh, Adrian Humphreys in the National Post about this guy's background. And I had always thought that he got to know Zainab Catter. Around 2008, 2009, when he uh, showed up for the protest about Omar Khadr being detained in Guantanamo Bay. But Adrian reports, in fact, he met the, K- the Khadr family, and Zainab Khadr specifically, back in 2006, when the Toronto 18 were charged and they were going to court and the Khadr family was in court supporting the terrorists. Right. That's where he went. That's where he met. Zainab Khadr was in 2006. Uh did maybe Justin Trudeau meet her too?
0: Uh, I did, boy, there's a there's a there's a there's a very Something uncomfortable smells. feeling that you, you get a very uncomfortable feeling. Yes. When you put all of these these factors together, and then you add the peripheral stuff that I mentioned at the beginning of the hour, you start to become you start to become extremely curious.
3: Well, at at the very least, I think it shows a uh, an alarming um, lack of judgment on the part of our prime minister. Uh, And And what about his advisors? Pardon me? What about
0: his advisors?
3: Well, yes, if he listens to anybody, or if they all think like he does, or if this is just another example, I think, this guy is in the news, people are sympathetic for him, I want to show the world what a sympathetic guy I am.
0: You know, Scott, I was also thinking of when Mr. Trudeau decided to remove the CF-18s from the coalition bombings of ISIS. Immediately afterward, the international defense ministers met on what to do about ISIS, and they uninvited Canada, or they refused to invite Canada. And I've heard just rumors over the last year or so about Canada being slow in getting information, that our allies are not particularly enthusiastic about providing all of the information. And I've talked to people who are really quite well informed about what's going on. And uh, they have more questions now than they have answers to. Well,
3: I, it's interesting you mentioned that. I have to tell you that I've heard exactly the same thing about the um, supposed rescue of uh, Joshua Boyle and uh, Caitlin Coleman in Pakistan, that the Americans were uh, behind it and they didn't tell us until it was already underway
0: yeah.
1: r- for the reasons you're mentioning.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh,
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I certainly do not
2: intend to allow a brutal and sacrilegious gang of criminal miscreants to dictate the future direction of my family, nor to weaken my family's commitment to do the right thing, no matter the cost. In the final analysis, it is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on which we shall all eventually be
0: judged. That is the voice of one Joshua Boyle, uh, not so long ago, Scott Newark, former crown attorney in Alberta, and uh, international security expert, consulted with the government of Canada, the government of Ontario, and is uh, now a security policy analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. You hear that voice, you hear that phraseology, it's just odd. Yes. It's very, it's it's disturbing.
3: Yeah, we we. Did- as I mentioned, uh, shortly after he got back, and uh, uh, the fact that uh, don't be surprised if he's back in the news, and you know, he is not only for the meeting with the, the Prime Minister, which is beyond strange, but he's also now charged with, I believe, uh, 15 counts,
0: mm-hmm.
3: as we discussed uh, previously. But do you not get
0: the feeling, Scott, that he wants to be the news?
3: I uh, I think he is uh, uh, narcissistic to the point that yeah. he thinks he can control things.
0: Yeah, because you got that certainly got that impression with the Mcleans interview. Yeah.
3: yeah, and and I thought quite telling in that was their comments on the way he was verbally abusive to his wife. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. and now he's got all these charges, and I've never seen I haven't seen the criminal information, so I'm only going on what I've seen in the media. Mm-hmm. But supposedly it covers a span from literally the day after he arrived, where they were staying at his parents' place in Smith Falls to December the 30th, okay? If that's the case and there are incidents back, uh, you know, in October, that means they would have occurred at his parents' home, most likely. We're
0: not supposed to speculate as to who the victim could be,
3: right? Well, it's not a question. You're not allowed to report on who it is. I Mm -hmm. I mean, I I appreciate this is Canada, but we're still allowed to speculate, okay? (laughs) Uh, And the the other thing that, that really strikes me about that as well, too, Uh, I did a little uh, digging around, and it turns out, by remarkable coincidence, that uh, his wife, Caitlin Coleman's parents from uh, Pennsylvania, were actually up in Ottawa at the time when the police responded to the call. Okay, I think that may be uh, something more than a coincidence. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I look at all of this and I look at these charges and I look at this guy's behavior and his, uh, his wife's seeming inability to stand up to him as well, too, it struck me, and it's ironic because of his relationship with the Catter family. Yeah, I certainly hope that we protect the children as a priority. Okay, we didn't do that with the Catter family. Mm-hmm. We knew that those kids were being subjected to indoctrination into an Islamist death cult, and we did nothing. And look at the results. Let's not do that again. Let's not let those children be put at risk. Yeah,
0: you know. Um, a lot of people are speculating. First of all, we know he's a control freak. You get yeah. that? I mean, that's pretty obvious. But a lot of people are, are speculating that he really wasn't a kidnap victim. And again, when I when I read the McLean piece and I read the, uh, the piece that you mentioned a few minutes ago, when a kidnap victim shouts at his captors yeah. and instructs them how to properly pray, pray yeah. and how to conduct themselves, that kidnap victim under being held by or an organization like the Haqqani Network or the Taliban is likely going to be not around for, for very long. So I, I have a lot of questions about that entire time in, Af- in Afghanistan and then supposedly Pakistan. And I, I, there's so many questions that need to be answered. Let me, let me just bring you back to being the prosecutor. Sure. You've got all of this on your table now, and you have to take this the next step. Do you think the Prime Minister should have spoken about the visit with with Boyle? What what does Scott Newark won next?
3: Um, Based on the facts of the complaint that are made uh, by the statement of whoever the individual was, I want to know what the evidence is that I've got, and I'm going to go to court and stay the hell out of the way, Justin Trudeau, because this is called the rule of law, and this individual is going to be prosecuted according to the evidence and the laws of Canada. And just because this guy thinks he may have cozy in and got an angle with you, okay, that has nothing to do with the rule of law.
0: Would you have concern as a prosecutor that the Prime Minister of Canada might try to interfere?
3: No. Uh, at least, uh, I, I can't imagine that at all.
0: Okay. I
3: can't imagine that. But, you know, it's, it's very interesting you make that point, because that is the way these kinds of people think. I've had direct involvement in advising ministers over the years about being careful about who they met with. It, it, uh, one one area was in relation to Chinese espionage. Another was in relation to Islamist groups, okay, that love to get together with a politician, a public official, so they could have that picture taken just in case five years later, maybe they were under investigation, the public official might go, ooh, I'm in the same picture with that guy. Maybe we shouldn't be
1: prosecuting yeah. him. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM
0: 900 CHML. Just listen to the voice, close your eyes unless you're driving, and just listen.
2: I certainly do not intend to allow a brutal and sacrilegious gang of criminal miscreants to dictate the future direction of my family, nor to weaken my family's commitment to do the right thing, no matter the cost. In the final analysis, it is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on which we shall all eventually be judged.
0: It is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on on which we shall all eventually be judged. Mm. Who talks like that?
3: How convenient.
0: How convenient, Scott Newark. Go ahead.
3: Uh, Isn't that an insight? Uh, You know, um, my intentions transcend all else, and your judgments are immaterial. Uh, That's what I say. It's this combination, I think, of the... uh, uh, arrogance and narcissism that is uh, very telling about this guy and it's, met, it's what what's developing is just I think probably two manifestations of it in the meeting with Trudeau and uh, also these uh, criminal charges. I tell you one other thing about the meeting with uh, Trudeau Roy that I just I mentioned in a couple of interviews that I did. Um, I think I probably speak for the majority of Canadians when I say there better not be any announcement of a 10.5 million dollar payoff, to this guy, uh, because we didn't do enough to uh, get him returned from uh, captivity.
0: Well, I haven't heard that he has a lawyer yet.
3: Yeah, if, I guess if Dennis shows up, yeah, we should be uh, maybe a little concerned.
0: Look, is that a? Would you take that as a legitimate point to be uh, to be concerned about or consider? Actually,
3: no. Just because I think it's so outrageous, um, I, I would say not. Although I can't imagine. Sitting here, I cannot imagine how the Prime Minister of Canada could have a meeting with somebody who is a supporter of a designated terrorist entity that has killed Canadian soldiers. So I'm, I'm finding it less and less able, or myself less and less able to be actually uh, uh, predict what it is that is motivating the Prime Minister and why he does what he does. In so, so
0: would you say then that Mr. Trudeau has a responsibility to get up and explain to Canadians why he had this meeting yes. with Boyle?
3: Yeah, and I, and I what, what it was
0: about, and what prime happened in 06.
3: Is that he will be asked those questions, although don't be surprised if you hear the standard responses, which is, uh, I'm not allowed to comment because of uh, privacy interest," or also these are now matters before the court, so we can't comment.
0: And he goes on his national tour in a couple of days. got it. The prime minister, not Boyle.
3: Yes. Although, you know, Boyle's is probably not far. Uh, uh, fortunately, he is in custody. It'll be in, uh, very interesting to see, supposedly on Monday... Uh, there's going to be uh, what sounds like a potentially agreed upon uh, uh, bail conditions. It will be very interesting if we're able to actually get any of those uh, conditions uh, known because that should give some insights into the charges as well.
0: This is almost this is just too strange to yes to to take apart and put together again. it just it just doesn't make any sense. There's nothing conventional about this, and what really, again, is the is is the cherry on top of the um, pick your own uh, substance, mm. is the meeting with the Prime Minister of Canada and Boyle saying that they'd met before in 06 and had mutual interests.
3: Yes, and notice that it was Boyle who said it, not released by the Prime Minister. Why well, would Justin Trudeau
0: meet with Joshua Boyle? Why?
3: What? I, think, Why? I think that's a question that is appropriately asked and needs to be
0: answered. Because he won't, he's had no meetings with the families of Robert Hall and John Ridsdale. Correct. And when I spoke with uh, with Benice Thomas, who's the, the sister of uh, Robert Hall, she told me that Trudeau called when the death of her brother was announced, and she said he sounded like he was reading... Um, uh, uh, just a, a, script. a st- yeah, a script, a statement of yeah. uh, of condolence. But she said he sounded like he was reading it, and when he was done, he hung up. That was it. He was done. He was gone. Yeah,
3: the the choices we make, uh, frankly, uh, are uh, offer insights into uh, values and motivations. And I think this is the kind of a thing. This, uh, as we talked about uh, many times before, the payoff to Omar Cotter, which he has never. Uh, explain to people why it was that he felt obliged that he, uh, the uh, the government had to make the payoff. He simply refuses to do that. Well, he said he th- that he, that didn't he didn't want to like pay ways. forty million, right? Pardon me.
0: Said he didn't want to pay forty million later.
3: Yeah, but he doesn't. He doesn't say what the basis.
0: No, was, I know, was. I know, I know, I know violation I know, I know.
3: You know, uh, and now we've got this guy who it seems like is trying to play a card, and uh, even. Uh, you know, gain some leverage over the prime minister in having this meeting. And by the way, the information I've seen is that it was Boyle that asked for the meeting. And the prime minister's office agreed.
0: You know, are we, are people thinking things, wondering things that they're not going to say because there's a line that you don't cross when it comes to somebody in a particularly high office without really substantial evidence, um, and I'm not suggesting there is any lying around, people will say things or speculate things about others without any evidence whatsoever, just the beginning of a conversation and you get on you know you got on social media, you, you know you've seen it yeah. but are, 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 are we pulling back because it's Justin Trudeau?
3: No, I don't. uh, I I mean, I think in one sense it's a positive sign that people, you know, instinctively are uh, going to the position that you're a public official, and that's why I made the point that, you know, he met on uh, uh, Parliament Hill uh, representing Canadians. I have a right, therefore, to know why you did that. And I expect you to answer those questions.
0: But if he doesn't, and he hasn't... And
3: that, I think, is what is going to, I personally think, ever the optimist, I think that is going to have some political consequences for him and for the liberal party. And he was
0: silent. He's been silent on what's going on in Iran.
3: Yes, uh, that's a whole other subject. I know,
0: but people and start to drag them together. You know, you start to look. You see, you, people start to reach out. We all start to reach out, and we look for 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 common denominators. We try to when we try to come up with a conclusion. When we try to come up with a with a, with a, with a picture that makes sense to us, we reach out for for whatever's there and sort of bring it in and then assemble it, try to make something, try to make a pic- picture out of the jigsaw puzzle.
3: But that's the, that's the value and the importance, I think, of things like uh, accountable public officials, okay, and having a process where, whereby people ask him questions. Mm-hmm. Equally, the importance of the media. There has been excellent analytical reporting by the media on this. Okay, and I think that underscores the importance of the media in a free democratic society. These no. are questions that are legitimate questions that the person involved as the prime minister needs to answer.
0: If Trudeau doesn't meet with Boyle, we're not having this conversation.
3: Um, I, no, I think we would have still been having the conversation because of the criminal charges against him. Yeah, but
0: we're not having this conversation. conversation. We're not having this conversation. We're no,
3: it would be a different conversation.
0: No,
1: yeah. See, but it is
3: still something that would be relevant Because this is somebody who is now, you know, virtually immediately upon his return to Canada appears to have been engaged in illegal, uh, harmful activity against other people.
0: Let me ask you one more question. Yeah. How does this play with other countries' governments and other countries' leaders and other countries' military intelligence and, and their intelligence services? How does it play with other security people globally how are they? How how do they see this? How will they be reacting to it? What are the questions they're asking? How great an interest is it to others internationally?
3: It definitely is, uh, and it's, it's. This is not the only time this has occurred. Um, look at the uh, approval of the uh, sale of uh, security-related technology companies to Chinese. That's right. The Americans were, you know, not exactly pleased about that. That's as right. other countries, not been. You mentioned some of our military decisions. The same thing occurs. Actions or inactions by government leaders have consequences.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And watching the way, uh, you know, this government dealt, for example, with uh, Omar Khadr or Abdullah malki and those guys in making these payouts, people notice, and they wonder whether or not uh, there is a, a government that is, uh, frankly, uh, motivated appropriately and uh, trustworthy. And, yes, people are paying attention to this stuff, I guarantee you.
0: This is not over by a long shot. That's correct. Not over by a long shot. Now Boyle has a court appearance on, as you said, on Monday, Monday. and he's asking for bail. Yes. So we'll maybe know more on Monday. Uh, who knows? He may blab something.
3: You never know. Uh, he's got uh, he's got pretty good counsel, and uh, they will be looking uh, to uh, to get him out and. Um, uh, the conditions on which he is released, if they are made, if there is any sort of a public attention to them, may give some insight as to uh, of the, uh, the the substance of the charges. Um, you know, and uh, uh, as I say, uh, above all else, I certainly hope that we learn the lesson of what we didn't do with the Catter kids, mm-hmm. uh, because if those kids are, uh, and, and they are, they are at risk. And in being in, they inculcated aren't. into this guy's uh, mindset, yeah. uh, I think, as he's, uh, you know, demonstrated, and those kids deserve the protection of Canadian law.
0: This is the most unusual situation that I can remember involving uh, this country's leadership uh, in my life.
3: Uh, I hope you put that word leadership in quotation marks.
0: I should be more careful with my You're choice right. of words, shouldn't I? Mr. Newark, it's always, uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and it's informative. All right, sir. Thanks for the time. Bye-bye. Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show, former Alberta prosecutor, security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada, security policy analyst now, also writes for Frontline Magazine, and an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: I haven't talked to my guest, for current guest for quite a few years. Ken Timmerman is the president and the CEO of the Foundation for Democracy in Iran. He was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee and uh, ran for Congress in in the United States. And I've spoken with Ken. I'm sorry. Would you please remind me what the title of your book is?
4: Uh, The most recent book is Deception, the Making of the YouTube Video, Hillary and Obama Blamed for Benghazi. Uh, Benghazi has been something I followed very closely for a number of years, uh, and uh, the story has not yet been fully told.
0: Well, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a it's been a long time, and I thought of you immediately when I saw people in the streets of uh, of Iranian cities demanding their freedom and calling for the ouster of this oppressive regime, and and the progressive Western media were talking about economic concerns, and I'm sure there are economic concerns, and the sanctions have created economic difficulties, but the regime has only itself to blame for that, whereas the people just want to change, but the progressives in the West, including many uh, federal governments, national governments, had zero to say, and when the United States called the Security Council of the United Nations together yesterday, there was uh, the France and Russia said, well, it's a domestic uh, uh, issue, so stay out of it. So you've, you've studied and watched and written on, on Iran for years. What's the current situation about? What started it, can and what do people really want?
4: Well, uh, the, the protest began in Mashhad, which is a pro-regime city. It's a, uh, considered to be the second holiest city in Shiite Islam in Iran. Uh, and it's surprising to see anti-regime protests start there. Uh, it's, it's certainly true that at the very beginning, and this is now 10 days ago, Uh, These protests began with um, a, a great deal of frustration over regime corruption. They saw all this money coming to Iran thanks to the Iran deal that Obama and the Europeans negotiated. And they didn't see it coming to the people of Iran. It was all going into the coffers of the regime and into the pockets of regime leaders. So there was certainly a great deal of frustration over the corruption of the regime. But that very, very quickly, and I mean within hours, Roy, uh, became, uh, it transformed into an anti-regime uh, protest. And since the very first day, these protests, unlike the ones in 2009, have been squarely aimed at the regime, at the regime leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, and at the clerics.
0: And they were also not very happy with the people who'd been at the front and center of the protest in 09, right? Uh,
4: that's right. And those people called the reformists have quite pointedly refused to back these protesters because it, it, it's clear they are for the regime. They would like to, quote, reform the regime, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. They want to make the regime more palatable to the West so they can enrich themselves. But they really don't care uh, for the freedom of the people. They don't care for the great unwashed. What's unusual about these protests is that it's the same class of Iranians who made the 1978-1979 revolution. This is the poor, the urban poor, the rural poor, the unemployed uh, people who have been set aside by Iranian society, and that's a real big problem for this regime which claims to represent those people.
0: What's amazing, Ken, is that people will really risk their lives to go and demonstrate against a regime that has already threatened them with execution. Uh, if they're found to be uh, particularly troublesome demonstrators, uh, a judge, I believe, in Tehran, said words to the effect that you know some people could be executed. But they're going out and they're they're protesting in huge numbers. Do they have any real expectation of success? Do you think that this is possible? Because I've heard that some some cases revolutionary guards have, have uh, burned their uh, their IDs and have joined with the protesters. Do you think there's any real chance that this could continue, it's 10 days now and it's still going on, that it could morph into something that would, in fact, bring the current regime down?
4: Uh, you know, we, we don't know. Uh, but what I can tell you is that the pro-regime media in the West, and I would include the Voice of America, unfortunately, with that, already proclaimed... The protests were dying out three days ago when their friends in Tehran told them that the protests were dying out. And that was because the regime had called their people into the streets, uh, were requiring uh, regime employees to take part in counter-demonstrations. These protests are not over. Uh, Today is the 10th day. Uh, They have spread to more cities. Uh, We have seen them, and this is quite unusual and extremely important, they're in all of the minority areas of Iran, all the areas on Iran's periphery, the Baluchi areas close to Pakistan and Afghanistan, the Azeri areas close to Azerbaijan, the Kurdish areas on the borders with Turkey and Iraq and even with Syria, uh, the the Arab areas on the border with, with, with Iraq. I mean, they're on all of these areas on Iran's periphery, which the regime has never really been able to control very well. And they know are hotbeds of protests. Those areas did not join the 2009 protests. Uh, So this is new, and it's extremely important, and I think they're staying power. You're
1: listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: We're talking about uh, Iran, what's going on in Iran, the 10 days of uh, public protests, and calls for the regime change by the people who are on the streets protesting, and more than 20 people have been killed. And the United States called for an emergency meeting of the Security Council. That happened yesterday. Here's a little bit of what the U.S. U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, had to say.
2: In the past week, what has happened on the ground throughout the mission of Iran is something the world must take note of. It is a spontaneous expression of fundamental human rights. The Iranian people are rising up in over 79 locations throughout the country. It is a powerful exhibition of brave people who have become so fed up with their oppressive government that they're willing to risk their lives in protest.
0: I like her. I really like her. Nikki Haley seems to me to be very much like a, a young Margaret Thatcher, you know? Get off that island. Get off those islands or else. Uh, Ken Timmerman, President CEO of the Foundation for Democracy, in Iran joins me on the Roy Green Show on Global News Radio. So Ken, how important is, because you wrote a piece that uh, it's going to take more than talking, how important is it that President Trump has publicly spoken in support of those who are massing in the streets? And what is it going to take beyond talking, beyond President Trump and whatever else, whatever other support there might be? And it's been pretty sparse as far as international governments are concerned. What's it going to take to make real change in Iran?
4: Well, uh, first of all, it's tremendously significant that the President of the United States uh, is speaking out publicly on behalf of the protesters. This is in pretty dramatic uh, opposition uh, to what happened in 2009 when Obama stayed silent for the first couple of days. And when he finally spoke out, he said, well, we're not going to get involved because it's a domestic Iranian affair. He's, Obama essentially said what the Europeans and Russia are saying today, don't get involved because we've got business interests in Iran. Uh, President Trump has taken a very different position, and I can tell you from my interaction with um, the people in the pro-freedom movement in Iran, uh, they are thrilled. They're really ecstatic that the president of the United States has been supporting them. They are ecstatic when they listen to Nikki Haley. That clip that you played is just one of many where she has come out uh, and really become a voice for the Iranian people. It's uh, amazing to see this and to hear this, where a senior U.S. official, she's a member of the cabinet, uh, Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, has as well, but Nikki Haley, I think, has been the passionara of the Iran protests here. Uh, it's amazing to listen to this. Uh, we've never had this from a U.S. government, not even under under George W. Bush in the 2003 protest. So starting with right there, it makes a big difference. It has really encouraged uh, the people of Iran. But it's not all. Um, there is a leadership to this movement. It's not very well known. It's not very public. But there is a leadership. Uh, they have organized cells in at least 50 Iranian cities, uh, coordinating their operations. You can see this by the way the protests are moving. They're very careful to uh, have these protests pop up in all kinds of different areas where the regime has really not been able to tamp them down all at the same time. It's like whack-a-mole. They tamp them down one place, and then there's a protest someplace else they hadn't been expecting it. And it's throwing them off balance. It's throwing the regime off balance. But I think that there's more that can be done. I think the Uh, Certainly, the United States can do more, and I think we are going to be doing more uh, if we're not already doing it behind the scenes, Uh, for example, in providing free Internet access to the people who are protesting. The Pentagon has ways of doing that. Uh, And I think it would be wonderful if the international community would at least recognize the rights of the Iranian people. I'm going to be in Brussels next week giving a speech Encourage to the European Parliament, encouraging them to do just that. Um, this is as important as any revolution that we've seen uh, in history, uh, and they need support from the outside. Because
0: a lot of the mainstream media are really playing it down. They uh, they continue to refer to the regime as the Iran or Iranian government, and then they talk about the um, the rallies that uh, supposedly supports the uh, the clergy the mullahs that are running uh, uh, Iran and you look at the, the, the these the supposed government supporting rallies they look more, more like marches the people are lined up about ten across and they just there's no there's no real there's no emotion it's just like you're going to be here at such and such a time and you're going to hold this sign which which really defends and supports the the regime vis-a-vis the the protesters who are out on the streets, milling around, doing what they need to do, creating the uh, the the they're creating an atmosphere, but they're also uh, can there many of them are calling, as I understand it, calling for a return to Iran of the Crown prince, the son of the shah. is that is that for real? do they want do they want a return of the royal family?
4: Uh, It is for real. Uh, I can't tell you how widespread it is, but absolutely there have been been protesters who've been chanting uh, for Reza Pahlavi to come back to Iran. He's a figurehead of what was once a successful country, a prosperous country, um, a country that was accepted by the world community, a country whose citizens were not pariahs as Iranians feel that they have become today because of the terrorist activities of the clerical regime. So Reza Pahlavi really does represent something real and positive to the Iranian people. Again, how widespread is that pro-Shah sentiment? I don't know, but it's very real, and I think it's, it's pretty deep.
0: If they were to be successful, if the people were to be successful, the protesters were to be successful, to remove the regime, if the military, certain parts of the military, were to say, we're not going to fight our own people, which I've heard has already happened, we won't do this, this is not why we're in uniform. So if they were to be removed, what's the objective then, as far as the future of Iran, without the clergy running the show, would it be to return to almost a westernized country, which is what they were, prior to the removal of the Shah? Uh,
4: I I think that is, ultimately in the cards because iranians see themselves as a sophisticated people as a well educated people uh, as a people connected through the internet uh, to the to the world community uh, to the rest of the world you know persian is one of the top languages on twitter and on uh, facebook mm-hmm. uh, after english uh, so iranians really are connected to the outside world and they suffer when the regime does as it has in the past few days when they shut down social media um, they suffer from that, and they're sophisticated enough that they're able to get around uh, that crackdown on social media. Yeah, I think, I think you would see a pro-Western uh, government in Iran, a representative government of Iran, one that accepts the rights of women, promotes women. There used to be women judges in Iran up until the revolution in 1979, which was obviously a regressive revolution, right. it took Iran 700 years backwards.
0: Uh, not forwards. Yeah, Ken, I have to stop I have to stop there, but I thank you so much for joining us today and I hope you'll come back because I'm I have a feeling this is going to continue for some time.
4: You bet we are at iran.org.
0: I yeah, exactly, yeah, I, I, that's it. Thank you so much. Ken Timmerman thank is the the yeah, he's the uh, president of I got it here. Hold on. He's the president and CEO of the Foundation for Democracy in Iran and he's the author of Deception: The Making of the YouTube Video. Hillary and Obama blamed for Benghazi. The Roy
1: Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.